that on climate change, especially, um, you know, I think the changes that are needed are going to be really painful. It isn't mm. just a question of recycling or no. even buying an electric vehicle. Um, you know, what would it mean if our economy didn't run on fossil fuel? This is another episode of a special series called Enough for All of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. This series sheds light on 75 years of an NGO called CWS. My name is Mitch Bloom and I welcome you to another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another uh, episode of the special series called Enough for All of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest. We'll ask her her to introduce herself. Uh, Beth, please go ahead. Hi, everybody. My name is Beth Ferris. Right now, I'm a professor at Georgetown University and director of our Institute for Study of International Migration. I've had a long career in the humanitarian world. I worked overseas, primarily through the World Council of Churches, also with the Life and Peace Institute in, in Sweden. I've taught at several universities. I was a Fulbright professor in Mexico. Um, I was the head of Church World Services Immigration and Refugee Program back in the 90s. Um, you know, so I, I've done a lot of different things, and um, I've always cherished my time with CWS. I'm presently a board member of the Church World Service. Yeah, I mean, you you really have, you know, you've worked for us, you're with, with us, and now you're part of the board. Excellent. And always, um, you know, being very supportive in, uh, you know, helping with uh, research that uh, CWS is, you know, has been doing. And yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And, and you're so knowledgeable. So I, I uh, yeah, I really appreciate you. Um, you know, do you still remember the first time that you heard about CWS? You know, I was working in Geneva, started in the, I guess, the late 1980s, working at the World Council of Churches, and I would always hear about Church World Service, CWS this, CWS is coming to town, they're organizing this, mm -hmm. and I just got this sensation of Church World Service as a real leader in, in the refugee world, both mm -hmm. with UNHCR and with the different agencies, and there was always kind of a an aura of respect. Oh, Church World Service is doing this. So my earliest memories of, of CWS was hearing about what I thought was this big, powerful, incredible organization. Um, you know, I later learned it wasn't so big and powerful, but it is an incredible organization. <laughs> yeah. And but so you 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 did not hear about CWS, you know, when you were young, uh, you know, because many no, when I talk no. with them about the crop hunger walk. So you were. Uh, so that's no, not I was how never you part of that. Okay. No, not at all. You know, I heard heard about it on the international stage. Yeah. yeah. I'm a Quaker. I taught mm -hmm. in various U.S. universities, but I but I wasn't involved with CWS before before I started hearing about this big, powerful organization in Geneva. Yeah. Okay. And so tell us tell us about you know when you worked for CWS as a staff member. How did that happen? You know uh, when and 
what were the challenges at that time and how is that different than what's happening now, according to you, or what is similar? Sure. Well, after working at Church World Service, I mean, work on some churches for six or seven years, I went to Sweden and worked at the Life and Peace Institute. My career has kind of gone back and forth between humanitarian operations. I get burned out. I go work at an academic institution. I get bored. I go back to the field. Anyway, so I've gone back and forth. And we were living in Sweden. And, you know, on a family level, it was about time for us to move back to the U.S. Our kids were approaching high school. If they, you know, wanted to go to university in the U.S., it would be good to be back there. Um, so we were beginning to think about moving back to the U.S. And then I got a call from Bill Sage, who worked at Church World Service, and he said, you know, we're looking for a new director for IRP, the Immigration and Refugee Program. Will you apply? And talked to my husband, you know, and my husband it was wonderful. And he, he'd he always said from the day we got married, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll follow your job anywhere except in New York. Won't go to New York. I hate New York. <laughs> anyway, and so yeah. I turned to him and I said, hey, you want to go to New York? And he said, wait, 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 what, what? And as we talked about, he said, well, go ahead and apply. It doesn't hurt to apply. And anyway, I met with the committee. I think we really hit it off. We were on the same wavelength, you know, my commitment to churches and faith and refugees and and so on. And so we moved to New York. We actually lived in New Jersey, which was kind of the halfway house for my, my husband. And I, I headed up IRP from, um, it was 1993 until 1999 or 2000. And those were, it was the, the hardest job I've ever had um, by far, because there were so many different partners. There were the denominations and there were all the government agencies and there were this incredible network of local affiliates and the international partners and you know different levels of governance and CWS was then part of National Council of Churches. So I got involved with a lot of NCC actions. But you know it it was it was high pressure work. We were dealing with refugees and arrivals and things had to be right and dealing with government contracts, which are very complicated and very demanding. And at the same time, trying to maintain a faith perspective through all of that. And, you know, those were the years of Bosnia, Rwanda, major international crises. And you know, so those were, were tough years, but it's certainly the most or one of the most rewarding experiences I've had working, working with refugees. It was really a privilege to work with such a you know, just a fantastic network of people, each in their own way, trying to live out their faith by by supporting others. And in my particular program, by welcoming refugees or advocating for their rights. And yeah, so it was a wonderful and exhausting experience mm-hmm. the six years I spent with, um, with Church World Service. If you compare it to what you had to do and what's happening now, yeah, how how different or how similar is it? Work, I, mean, I think there are the basic similarities on you know, trying to meet the needs of refugees, whether they're arriving in the U.S., and ensure that priorities of the people most at risk are the ones that are resettled. You know, back in the 90s, the border situation was difficult, and there were always inconsistencies in U.S. policy toward Central Americans, toward Haitians, toward people from the former Soviet Union. But now it's just more complicated. It's more politicized. It's linked with security, with mm. terrorism. And those weren't issues back in the early 1990s. Yeah. And and when do you think that, sh- that uh, shift happened and within the mm-hmm. States? 
Or, or you can't put your finger nine, on, on. It was 9-11 was the turning yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this feeling that we're, we're being threatened by Muslims from attacking us from elsewhere. And, you know, suddenly Muslims came under scrutiny in neighborhoods where they had been accepted. And, you know, you saw this anti-Islam backlash. You saw mm. this fear of foreigners. I, I think that was the turning point. Yeah, but what do you like about the work of CWS? Uh, the thing I've always appreciated about Church World Service is its blend of being deeply rooted in the faith communities. And I think that's important and sets it apart from many others. And at the same time, very professional. I mean, staff can you know, certainly hold their own with the big, huge secular organizations working in this field. So it's that combination of you know, being grounded in faith and in grassroots communities and working in partnership and really being committed to partners all around the world and at the same time having this high level of, of professionalism um, and, and the quality and nature of the work they do. Hmm. Um, you know, so so after you uh, left CWS, you've done, you know, many, many things, Lots of things. As, as you explained. Um, but then a couple of years ago, you came back as a, as a board member. Um, yeah. So, how, you know, how was that different? How is it different to be a board member instead of a staff member? Or is it similar? Yeah. Well, it's, it's quite different. I mean, I think as a board member, you're looking at big picture issues and strategic directions and, you know, some of those areas where it's good to have outsiders to help think through some of the issues. Um, I remember as a staff member thinking that our governing bodies really didn't know what we were going through. You know, the level of pressure and the yeah. kind of internal dynamics and staffing issues and budget issues and so forth. And, you know, as a staff member, you, you want to look good for your board, you know, or your mm -hmm. governing bodies. And, and, I, and I think we did. And so sometimes when I'm in board meetings, I'm thinking, Hmm, I wonder what's going on behind the surface here. I bet there's more that we're not hearing about, which is fine. I don't think it's the board's role to delve into that. But I guess I'm just kind of more keenly aware of the multiple pressures that staff face. And, you know, my sympathies are always with staff and their their workload levels. I, I think CWS has tremendous staff, but under a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure and you know, part of the pressure comes from their own commitment of seeing more that they can do and taking on more responsibilities than they, they should. Um, you know, and so I think as a board, there's always an element of kind of wanting to protect the staff, sometimes from their own good intentions. Is, is that when you talk about that, is that also what you worry about most as a board member? Or are there, you know, additional, you know, issues where you think, oh, you know, no, this, the things really I worry strange. about most, the thing that I worry about most as a board member are the big external forces, hmm. you know, the level of politicization, you know, what happens when the administrations change in the U.S., you know, what's happening in the world, uh, will there ever be solutions for Rohingya refugees, for example, well, these horrible scandalous protracted displacement ever come to an end. There's always a lot of interest when there's a new refugee situation and, mm -hmm. and your hearts go out to Ukrainians and Afghans and others. But, you know, the folks who've been refugees for 30 years in Tanzania, they're, you know, 200,000 Burundians that have been yeah. confined to camps, you know, who's caring for them? 
you know, so I worry about some of these um, international pressures. I, you know, I think the UN has failed in keeping peace and security. The Security Council is blocked from playing the role it should play. And so humanitarian agencies, including, I would say, Church World Service, are there to put the Band-Aids on and do the best they can and to help the victims. But, you know, until we stop these conflicts, that work is going to be never-ending and never totally satisfactory for people who want to go home. And you were, you were talking about, you know, Church World Service is there to put some Band-Aids uh, on. Um, do you think we... We should, uh, or we could, and or we could, do more in terms of you know more um, uh, you know looking at root causes and and contributing there to to the you know more sustainable solutions than the, than the band aids. Yeah, of course. You know, I'd like to see church world service and faith based communities generally do more to resolve conflicts mm -hmm. or stop conflicts from developing. Um, you know, there are some tensions for humanitarian organizations getting involved with root causes because it is always political. You know, there are always oppressors who need to be called out. And, you know, for organizations, particularly those working overseas, there there's sometimes tensions. You can you call out the government of Myanmar and maybe you're not able to work in that country anymore. And And there are desperate humanitarian needs. So it's not an easy decision to focus on root causes or dealing with the drivers of, of refugee situations. But, you know, I do think we need to figure out a way to be more effective in that. And, and there, you know, I have a lot of confidence in faith communities and Christian ecumenical communities. And we have a lot of political clout that we're simply not using. Mm -hmm. You know, most members of Congress are members of churches, including many who are members of members of you know, churches or their members of CWS that, you know, can be called upon and, and, and reached out to and um, lobbied to stop some of these wars or in the same internationally. So I think we could be doing more on root causes, um, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not straightforward. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. And and what are some of the, uh, the allies then at CWS or organizations like ours should be collaborating with how do you see that well i think we've got we've, i think we've got a ton of allies mm -hmm. you know both in you know, churches faith groups all around the world we've got you know got allies in ev almost every local community in the u.s through some mm -hmm. of our church members through the crop hunger walks through other outreach activities we have a lot of allies out there uh, maybe we don't ask enough of them. We ask them for money or sometimes to sign a petition or call their member of Congress. But you know, maybe there's more we could do. I, I participate often in the ecumenical advocacy days. And, you know, it's just such an uplifting experience to see all of these people from around the country who are joining forces on a particular issue for one particular day and to see the impact they can have in Congress. I mean, and we ought to be doing more of that. Great, and I'm I'm happy to to hear that you are lifting up the ecumenical efficacy days because I I really think you know uh, it is underestimated the power uh, that it has and what it does in terms of people that are participating and realizing that they can do something as an individual because often I think don't know best what you think about it you know we we are so overwhelmed with all the challenges right and then 
some of us maybe end up doing nothing because we think you know we sure. can't make a difference and and you can make a difference i think as an individual as well don't underestimate that um yeah that's my opinion yeah no no i agree i mean you know i'm a political scientist and sometimes i think i do too good a job of explaining the complexity of the mm. systems we work in uh, too good a job in the sense that it's totally disempowering you mm. see all of these forces together yeah. and what can little old me do? Oh, I might as well just stay home and I don't know, play solitaire on my computer or watch another sitcom. But um, there are things you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll just tell one of my stories yeah. um, that I always think of when I think of, you know, what can I do? Um, sometime back in the 90s, I visited with, uh, Malawi with a delegation from the all Africa Conference of Churches to look at the refugee situation. And Malawi then was hosting some 1 million refugees for 10 years. And so on. So the night before we were to visit the refugee camps, we had a kind of a social hour with local pastors. And I asked one of the pastors, oh, tell me about the refugee camp we're, we're going to tomorrow. And he said, well, actually, I've never I've never been there. And I said, oh, it's just a couple of miles down the road. And he said, well, you know, we've got other pressures in our church. You know, we don't have any members. We have problems with the roof. And then he, he got really embarrassed. And he said, can I come with you tomorrow? And I said, sure, sure. And we put him in the van with this group from all uh, Africans of churches and went off to the refugee camp. And, you know, some refugee camps are like like settlement, like villages, you be hard pressed to tell it's a refugee camp. But this was one that was filled with recent arrivals who just walked in from the bush and and, in Mozambique. And we walked around and a lot of people were were zombie-like. They were just staring with no expression. And it was really was really eerie, this zombie-like mood in this camp. And, And the pastor's was walking with me and he said, I can't take any more of this. This is why I don't come to these places. Let's go. And I said, okay. So we went off to the entrance and there we saw a group of 20 or 30 Mozambicans coming in, all women, no little kids, which tells you about the dangerous journey they'd been on. You know, they hardly had any clothes. They were hungry. And the person from UNHCR met them as they sat there at the gate and and the UNHCR staff person said, well, here's a bucket for you. Now you can go get in the queue and get some water. And then there's a queue over there to get some firewood so you can boil water. And here's some mealy meal there, staple food that you can cook. And I, the pastor standing beside me suddenly got this huge smile on his face. He said, there's nothing we can do to ease the pain in this camp, but we can provide a hot meal for people when they arrive. We can have the food cooked so they don't have to go wait in line for water and for wood. You know, actually what he said is the women in our church can come produce the meal for the refugees. But mm-hmm. but there was something about breaking down this enormity of this refugee problem into something con- concrete. We can provide a hot meal for people. That I, I always remember when we think about how big these problems are. You just you have to find your little bit, your niche where you can make a difference and then then do it. So, you know, I think that that's a challenge we all face. No, thank you for sharing that. I absolutely believe in the in the power of of one uh, as well. So so it's it, yeah. Thank thank you for sharing. Um, Beth, um, you know, I, I started this this special series um, 
because I think now two, one and a half year ago, um, you know, Church World Service celebrated its 75th anniversary or, or one year. I don't know exactly because uh, since COVID, you know, the years are so messed up. Um, but when when the organization celebrated its 50 uh, year anniversary, uh, it produced a book. The organization produced a book and it was called 50 Years of Help and Hope. And uh, we did not make a book now. I, I kind of say now, okay, now we have a podcast series where we talk about, you know, CWS. Um, but if you would be asked to come up with a title for a book after 75 years of, of CWS, what are some of the keywords that you think should be in the title of, of such a book? I would keep the word hope. I think that's been really central to all the work. I mean, I would call it something like um, hope through partnerships and, you know, given away from this notion of we are helping you, but we're together striving for a better world. And we work through partners and with others. You know, it's never just CWS who's doing something. It's always, you know, a host of allies with us. So I, I would say something like hope through partnership. Yeah, let me let me ask you a question about that partnership. What does that actually mean in 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 practice? You know, I think for, for CWS, I think it means a lot of things. I think it means, you know, internationally working with local partners, local mm -hmm. churches, local NGOs, local interfaith organizations. I I think we've broadened uh, the scope of partnership, which is which is great. It means, you know, doing things together, not just coming in and saying, well, this is the program, this is what you need. It's really working together to figure out what the needs are, where the energy should be placed. Um, sometimes it's about money, you know, we need money to do this. Sometimes it's about advocacy. Can you, you know, advocate with our government so that you know, refugees can go to school, for example. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's at the international level. We've got you know, lots of partners, I think. You know, UNHCR is a partner. You know, whether or not there's a funding relationship or not, we are working for the same goals. In the U.S., you know, all of the local affiliates and all of their members and, and relationships are part of this network, this incredible network that CWS has. And again, you know, I often t tell my, my students, you know, regardless of your religious orientation, there there are no networks equivalent. There's nothing like the Christian international network, whether it's Catholic or Protestant. You know, these networks extend into the tiniest African villages to metropolitan Latin American cities to, I don't know, from Louisiana to Alaska to Arizona to everywhere. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, Church World Service you know, is often challenged by all these partnerships, but that it's a real source of strength. When, when we are talking about, you know, 75 years of, of um, you know, hope in partnership, um, you know, I the, the story I tell, and, and you don't have to agree with me at all, but I, I say, you know, it started in 1946 as a Christian organization working uh, ecumenically and I think we have evolved into a more global organization you know a, a more global interfaith organization if you will hear me say that you know uh, you know do you agree um, and if so you know why and if you don't agree also explain you know why you think it's different with what I just said or more complex than 
you know, the sim simplification that I just gave. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think that it's good that we, we've expanded the scope beyond just Christian or ecumenical. Um, interfaith work is terribly important in, in most regions of the world. I would also include secular organizations in there. I mean, there are a lot of people, you know, pouring their hearts into their efforts for human rights groups, for example, that don't have a religious connection and may not be a matter of faith, but where they have high moral, ethical concerns. And, you know, I, I don't think, you know, Christians are necessarily better than other people with in terms of their values. But um, at the same time, you know, um, you know, I worked for, for years on in, in the ecumenical world. And, mm -hmm. you know, what, what I sometimes saw was that it was much easier for progressive Christians, say, to work with progressive Muslims or progressive Jewish communities than to work with conservatives in their own tradition. So it's easier to develop an interfaith organization than to work with Christians who don't share a certain political or progressive viewpoint. So sometimes it seemed almost like an, like an escape from confronting their realities mm -hmm. of dealing with your own tradition. And that's also true. I mean, I heard from, from some of my Islamic and Jewish colleagues, they had the same feeling. Oh, it's yeah, easier to work yeah. with these progressive Christians than with the, you know, the really radical Jews or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, but part of, of, of the maybe the shift in the organization, well, as you know, because you've been part of the discussion, is looking at our brand. And it's, it's, I think especially... Um, the conversation started because we seem to have challenges in reaching out to a younger audience. And, you know, one pos possible uh, challenge that we have is that our name of the organization is called Church World Service. And, you know, church scares of some, some folks. If they know more about us, you know, then there is not, not an issue. So, um, again, what I have to say is, you know, the the conversation that we have around brand is much more complex uh, than only changing the, the name of the organization. But let us focus on, on that for a moment. Um, what do you think um, about, you know, CWS having uh, conversations, having had conversations about changing the name of uh, Church Bolt Service to something else? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a possibility, and it might open the doors to support from others who are turned off by the name church. Um, and there is something kind of institutional about churches um, working together. I would like to see some reference to faith or, or something, because I think that is an important part of our heritage. You know, some have suggested, as other organizations have yeah. done, to just move away from church world service to CWS or CWS Global and not, you know, HIAS has done that. Mm -hmm. It used to be the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Um, now it's just HIAS. Mm -hmm. um, really to distance a little bit from that, from that particular association. Um, and, and yet without going through a full, full-fledged name change to come mm -hmm. up with something completely different where you might, lose some of your present constituents. So, I mean, I think it's a discussion to be had when, when it's maybe a little bit clearer where, where CWS is going and, mm -hmm. you know, how it views itself in this overall landscape of, on the one hand, development organizations, mm -hmm. on the other, faith-based initiatives. Those are issues, I think, that need some deeper reflection. 
your point of view, where do you think CWS should go? What should it do? Or, or what type of discussions do, does it need to have? Um, yeah, I, th I think we need to be a part of these discussions and part of this movement for racial justice and environmental justice, both those two big issues of our time. You know, on, on race, um, I've always been proud of CWS because this is not a new issue. It isn't something that the organization has struggled with, at least as long as I've been associated with it, probably from the early days where, you know, even back in the 90s, there were concerns about diversity among staff and, you know, what, who are we reaching and, you know, how are we, you know, using the contributions of the historic black churches, which have made such a contribution to church world service in the field, not just the racial justice, but in terms of solidarity and outreach and so on. So, you know, these are, I don't know, I just see that racial justice is ingrained in the, all of the work of CWS and there's more that can be done, but there's an awareness of, of race and the importance of things like diversity and inclusion and you know, that, that is different from other organizations who, you know, <laughs> I don't know who kind of wake up and say, oh, George Floyd, oh, yeah, we ought to do something about race. And, and that isn't the case with Church Real mm -hmm. Service. It has been grappling with these issues for a long yeah. time. Um, you know, I think the whole issue of climate change, you know, it, it is the big the big issue of our time. And you know, I had a guest speaker, an old humanitarian hand, who's worked for 40 years on humanitarian issues. And and he told my class of graduate students, he said, drop everything you're doing and work on climate change. Yeah, all of you want to work in the humanitarian sector and work with refugees, but the burning issue is going to be stopping these emissions because our planet is in peril. And this should be the priority. It's not business as usual. And, and you know, I think for Church World Service, it's, it's a question of, you know, how do you incorporate the urgency of responding, addressing, and fighting against climate change with the very real day-to-day -day pressures and you see and where you can make a difference. It's it's hard. It's hard to, you know, to decide to work on something that will probably bear fruit in 10 or 20 years when you have people who are hungry and who are scared and who need assistance now. So that balance between responding to short-term, immediate, life-saving urgent needs, and at the same time, finding the energy to tackle these big issues of, of climate change, particularly stopping these I mean, greenhouse gas emissions is, you know, it, it's a challenge how to do it all at one time. In the older, well, let's call it the regular series that I, that I have, I talked a couple of weeks ago with um, an, an economist. Well, he's not originally an economist, but now he works on uh, economy-related issues. And he, he wrote a book called Thrive, and where he discusses, you know, Buddhist economy and and donut economy, etc. And, and and basically, what what he was saying, you know, we we know that we need to have systems changed, but the system is so much ingrained within us. Uh, you know, we have lost so many things. We lost our connection with nature. Uh, we think only in terms of, you know, growth. Uh, but we should be thinking about, he calls it existential uh, economics. Um, and uh, yeah, it got me thinking in terms of, you know, it, it, I think it's necessary to look at yourself as well as an organization. Is the role that we are playing at this moment the role that we should be playing? And, and those are difficult 
difficult things, right? In terms of of uh, it relates to the story of the the babies that were going down the river and and you know the village uh, uh, saving the babies out of the out of the river. And then after a while, somebody says, you know, where are these babies coming from? And then one person right. says, well, we should go upstream and said, no, we have no time. We have to take care of these babies. So right. difficult, yeah, um, uh, stuff. But that, you know, uh, Beth, I have had a lot of conversations with the younger generation, especially foreseeable as how do we relate to them? Um, yeah, they, they are demanding, actually, <laughs> that, uh, you know, we have these tough uh, discussions and action um, that needs to be taken now. So, so it's it's uh, yeah, interesting time. Not not easy, but uh, yeah. But on climate change, especially, um, you know, I think the changes that are needed are going to be really painful. It isn't mm. just a question of recycling or no. even buying an electric vehicle. Um, you know, what would it mean if our economy didn't run on fossil fuel in the summertime, for example? And those kind of changes, I think, are going to be really tough. And, you know, I, I really hope that churches and church world service, when, you know, are, are able to make the point that this is really a question of survival. It isn't a luxury that you're doing to be politically correct. And I don't know, I just read an article yesterday that said, you know, if you want to help um reduce greenhouse gas emissions and don't go for Amazon's overnight delivery. You know, the more, the more trucks they have and the more trips they have to make, the more they pollute, you know, take your time and order things that take two weeks to deliver. They'll be more efficiently processed. And I thought, well, that makes sense. And I thought, I don't know any of my relatives who would do that, who would give up the convenience of next day delivery to do their little part you know, unless there was an assumption that this was mandated or that everybody was doing it. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, particularly Americans are so used to creature comforts that, mm. you know, giving them up. Let, let me send a check to an environmental organization, but I'm not sure about turning off my air conditioner in August. So, I'd like to quickly respond for two things. I, I think the younger generation, uh, is making those those choices actually you know the, the the folks that I've been talking with they don't order at, at Amazon that's, that's right. one second they are changing their food habits um right you know drastically so you know yes and that is putting you know the, the, then the shops they need to to change right. as well so right. so I, I yeah I see the if we talk about hope we talked about yeah. I see a lot of hope there um but a lot yeah, needs I to be done I, I, I see I, um, yeah, I see a lot of hope in young people too. I mean, I, one of the reasons I love teaching is that you're just inspired all the time by the by the initiatives they take and their commitment. And so I have a lot of hope with the younger generation. Um, a totally different question, which I always ask as well. If I ask you to... Um, uh, to come up with a piece of music or a song uh, that best embodies what CWS is about, what piece of music or song would that be? Well, I really like um, I really like some of the international ecumenical movement, and I don't know why I associate this song with Church World Service, but mm -hmm. Tumamina is one of my favorite songs, and I know there's something about you know the 
the humility in that song of, you know, Lord send me, Lord help me, um, that, that I that I find very moving. I, I like to think that church world service embodies that mm-hmm. that approach at least. And plus it's just such a beautiful song. And, you know, I, I've made a special Spotify um, song list. So, so. Uh, oh, I didn't yeah, know that. That's great. That. So, yeah, the people that I've talked with, they, they mentioned their song. Um, yeah, it's, it's I, I think it's cool to, uh, to listen to it. If I ask you to, to come up with a, um, a typical anecdote or, or a memory about CWS. Um, yeah, which which story would you tell? I, there, there are so many. I, I think the the best stories I have from CWS are are visiting local affiliates, local churches, refugees just being resettled, um, and they they kind of all run together, you know, in terms of the welcoming attitudes of the people that we we worked with and I, don't, I always found it just such a such a shot in the arm you know to be sometimes you get so my experience was you get so bogged down with budgets and administration and processes and bureaucracy in new york and then you then you go out to north carolina or to knoxville tennessee and you see what what people are doing you know and the difference they're making in the lives of refugees and it, it was always just a tonic. I felt like I needed it to, to to get through all the bureaucracy that you have to, at least you had to do. Maybe you have less bureaucracy now, but I doubt it. Um, but but just uh, just seeing the, the the local local faith in action is really energizing. Hmm. If I ask you to name uh, a colleague or a partner or a supporter of CWS who best embodies of what CWS is about. Who would you name and why? There are two names that come to me for different reasons from the time I worked at CWS. One is Jennifer Riggs, who at the time was head of the Disciples Refugee Program. She'd been a member of the then governing committee for the immigration and refugee policy work. And, you know, she was she was solid. She was always there. She was there when we had plenty of money and when we were desperate and laying off she was staff, tough as well she was there she <laughs> was, was also tough, tough you know and she was certain yeah she was i love but her. i think yeah. it was just that, yeah. yeah she was solid creative always yeah. there when you needed there always encouraging always hopeful um i don't that level of commitment really really stuck with me and another almost in a similar vein was john backer you know mm. who worked for I don't know, 30 plus years and the early days of meeting boats from Germany. And, you know, he was, when when I met him, he was older and, Mm -hmm. you know, as spry as he used to be. And he had a really hard time with computers. Um, But his, again, he he was there. He was solid. He was steadfast. He cared deeply in his own quiet, gentle way. And, you know, just did an enormous amount for CWS and, I don't know. There's something about them, yeah. his humility and mm-hmm. you know doing whatever you wanted and not wanting ever any credit or ever wanting to make a public report or something that was I think really special. And I'm glad that CWS now has a has an award that's named after him. I think that's Absolutely. that's quite moving. Yeah, yeah. No, I I totally agree. And and you know when I came 
to from Indonesia to New York, um, I still worked with him. He actually was uh, retired. <laughs> he continued yeah, to go to the office and work. It was, yeah, it was wonderful. I did absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm really happy that you that you named him. Yeah, I mean we are we are you know slowly coming to the end of our conversation. It always goes fast. Any you know if you would like to wish something for for CWS, what would that be? I wish there were greater public awareness of the good work CWS is doing. I mean, my sense is that staff and board alike are so busy keeping things going and running the programs that there's not much. Not enough effort put into, as my mom used to say, tooting your own horn and, and and talking about all the great work you're doing. You know, I'm, yeah. So, so I'm an avid uh, follower of Twitter. I get a lot of my news that way. At least as long as Twitter lasts. Um, and I often see, you know, lots and lots of reports from other non-governmental organizations working with refugees about all the good work they're doing. And, you know, I wish I'd see more of CWS there. I think people on the inside know what good work CWS knows, but, you know, whether it's CWS or the government or other refugee-related organizations. But I'd like to see more public outreach, more acknowledgement of what CWS does, not not for acknowledgement's sake, but to build a, a greater constituency to support CWS in its work. And I hope that, you know, people will be listening to to this podcast and the previous episodes and the future ones, because I, I think it's not, I mean, I think it's, it's great to listen to, uh, you know, the stories that are being told by present board members, colleagues, and, and ex-staff and, and colleagues and partners. Uh, not only to hear about the work of CWS, but also to, uh, to uh, as a part of the learning, you know, what happens with organizations and how they evolve and, and the struggles they have, but also the, the great accomplishments, accomplishments that they are, are making. And especially this one that has been there since 1946. And I, I still think, yes, of course, I'm biased, but I still think a lot of great work is, is uh, going on. So... Um, yeah, th thank you so much for, for uh, sharing your experiences, memories, and, and wisdom. Sure. I, I always uh, have to tune it. into the podcast and hear okay. some of the others as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, please do. Because uh, yeah, let me know what your what your thoughts are. And this the same question to the listeners. Please um, don't only listen, also let us know what you think about it, because we try to continue to improve it. So thank you so much, uh, Beth. Um yeah, and all the best with, with what you do. And, um, well, we Thanks. will see each other see in all the meetings that we always have. So, <laughs> Thanks, Maurice, and good luck. Great. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you want to know more about Church World Service, please check out cwsglobal.org. Thank you.